Hi, and welcome to the Soul on Fire Bible Study Podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Justin. Get ready to let God's consuming flame take hold of your life. Join us as we follow along with the Chapel High School Ministries Sunday Night Bible Study in the Book of John. Each week we'll dive deeper into another chapter and demonstrate how God speaks to us all through His Word. Hello everyone and welcome to John chapter 9. We're going to be doing things just a bit different for these next two chapters. I am going to be the one who focuses on John chapter 9 and Katie is going to be the one who focuses on John chapter 10. Let's get right into it. John chapter 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? We begin right off the bat with Jesus encountering a man who has lived his entire life blind. The King James Version Study Bible gives extra knowledge about the setting. The study note states that the controversy in this chapter happened during the Feast of Dedication. We've seen so many feasts thus far, and I wanted to share just some background on this feast If we move to the next chapter in John, chapter 10, verse 22, we read in scripture that it is the time of the Feast of Dedication. It also notes that it is winter. The study note for this verse provides us with some background. In 165 BC, Judas Maccabeus cleansed the temple after its desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes. The festival would last eight days and was called the Feast of the Dedication. Oh, and by the way, the Hebrew word for dedication is Hanukkah. With this background, we come back to the man who was born blind, whom Jesus encounters in verse 1. In verse 2, the disciples ask a question to Jesus, and this question shocks me. I just want to cringe when I hear it. It's not my place to judge, If I sat and thought, I know I've definitely asked a lot of dumb questions, especially in my faith. However, they begin with a reverent title for Jesus. Teacher, master, rabbi. And then they ask if this man's sin led him to being born blind, or maybe it was his parents' sin. To me, I look at this and say, how can a baby have sinned before birth to even deserve this punishment? The KJV answers here as well. It was common Jewish belief that all suffering was punishment for sin. We see this in verse 34 when the Pharisees interrogate the blind man. We are going to come back to the KJV footnote in just a minute. But the New International Version approaches this point as well. The NIV notes that while technically correct, that sin exists because of pain and suffering, it is not properly applied. Pain and suffering exist because of original sin, and the same goes for death. We know what the original sin was, of course. In Genesis, we read of God creating the Garden of Eden and commanding Adam and Eve only not to eat of the tree of knowing of good and evil. Original sin is their choice to eat after God forbade it. 
and told them that surely they would die if they did so. The forbidden tree is not the only tree that God created that had supernatural properties, however. If we recognize that God only forbid the tree of knowing good and evil, we can assume that all other fruit-bearing trees that were made in the Garden of Eden were made for man. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we skip down a couple of verses to verses 15 through 17, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Notice here that God only commands the tree of knowing good and evil is forbidden. God even states in it that you may freely eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowing good and evil. Then if we move on to chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 22 and 23. This is after original sin has occurred. After the fruit of the tree of knowing good and evil has been eaten, God then says, Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. Looking back over this, when God created Eden, he created the tree of life and he did not forbid it. Therefore, death, spiritual or physical, was not intended for humans before original sin. God offered us the fruit of the tree of life freely. He even confirms in that last passage that man, had man eaten it, would have lived forever. Death existed because of sin. Pain existed because of sin. But, not the blind man's sin, but original sin. The English Standard Version Study Bible gives other examples of showing people's sin isn't always the cause of their suffering. In Luke 13, verses 1-5, through 5, we read, About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. What about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, 
gives us another reason that he is found for suffering. If we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we read verses 7 through 10, it says, Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from being proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We may also read about the suffering that Jesus went through in his death. If we turn to John 17 and read the first five verses, after saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Here, Jesus is not suffering for his sin, but like Paul says, his suffering was to glorify God. If we go back to the King James Version, when it comes to the man sinning before birth, the Jewish people believe that life began at conception. And there are a few passages that we can look at in the Old Testament to show us this. If we look at the book of Psalm, chapter 51, David speaks of it in verses 5 through 6. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Again, we can hear this message from David if we go to Psalm 139 and we look at verses 13 to 16. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your worksmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. In the prophet Jeremiah's first message from God, we can read in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, the Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. In the New Testament, we can even see the same message from the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. 
how violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being. Therefore, as we read in the second verse of John chapter 9, we see that the culture did believe that sin could happen in the womb. It was even stated by the highly revered King David himself. This question wouldn't have been so out of the ordinary for the disciples to ask because it was a core belief of society at that time. Returning to John chapter 9, Jesus responds in verse 3 to that question. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Starting here in verse 3, just as we read in the last verse's footnotes from Paul and in Jesus' death, this suffering was to glorifying of God, not for this man's sin, not for his parents' sin. Specifically here, it was to aid in the testimony of Jesus and to provide another miracle as an example of his deity. A miracle that had never yet been seen before, but we'll touch on that more later. As we see in the Old Testament passages, however, this was predicted. Healing the blind was predicted as a sign of the Messiah three different times by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 29 verse 18 says, In that day the deaf will hear words read from a book, and the blind will see through the gloom and darkness. Furthermore, Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 says, And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. Finally, in Isaiah Chapter 42, verse 7, he writes, You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. And with verse 4, we see where Jesus never fails to connect with the people through the things that they understand. Here he notes the urgency of the work that he must complete in life, which he calls day, before his death, which he calls night. We also see that Jesus includes his disciples in the mission that he needs to complete before his death. As he moves on to verse 5, he connects himself directly with the sun that we know that lights the earth today. From the last verse in his day and night reference, by stating that he is the light of the world, just as the sun provides light to the earth, forming our day and night cycles. 
So if Jesus is resurrected, how do we have night after his resurrection? How does the term night fit in with what we know about how the world changed, how especially the spirit world changed after Jesus' death and resurrection? Well, at night, the moon illuminates the sky, but the moon doesn't create light. We know that the light from the moon is light that's being reflected from the sun by the moon. Therefore, the light of the sun still illuminates the night, even though the sun has set. This similar idea applies in this metaphor. Jesus gives light while he's here on earth. After his death, the light that provides all light to the earth is gone. It's set. It's not on the face of the earth. In his resurrection and ascension into heaven, Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit as a comforter. Through this gift, we who follow Christ can act as the moon does to the sun as we reflect Christ's light into the world. Even in the night, Christ still lights the earth. This can also be said that in all darkness, Christ's light shines through in us. We can read this in practice in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that could not be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all of those to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. All of the excitement that can come from this metaphor, that can come from this point that Jesus makes so clearly here, doesn't even begin to mention that this is an I am statement. This is a statement where Jesus is openly declaring himself as God. How many times do people ask Jesus, tell us plainly, do you claim to be the Messiah? Well, he's saying it. Listen here. Jesus is leaving nothing to question. Diving back into verses 6 and 7 of John 9, we read, Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. I get it. It is Jesus. The disciples have been with him witnessing miracles. This, though, must have been quite a sight to see. I like how the NIV words it, as Jesus is showing variety in his cures. Even using the dirt of the earth to restore. I enjoy the beauty here that God made Adam from the dust of the earth in Genesis. And Jesus is using dirt to restore this man's sight. 
if we look at verse 7, the NLT text states that Siloam means sent. It works on many levels. Jesus sent this man to wash the mud from his eyes. It was the act of being sent, the faith that this man had to go and wash in that specific pool that shows his trust in Jesus. His faith is rewarded with sight after he washes. The English Standard Version states that archaeology has shown the pool of Siloam to have been a very large pool, about 225 feet long, and that's only how long it was. In comparison, a football field is only about 300 feet end zone to end zone. The NIV Study Bible talks about how the pool has been marked by a structure from the Byzantine period for a very long time. But nearby remains were found in 2004 that were from the original pool of Siloam that would have been around in Jesus's day. An aqueduct that carried water to the pool was part of the water system that we see developed by King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 2020. It says, The rest of the events in Hezekiah's reign, including the extent of his power and how he built a pool and dug a tunnel to bring water into the city, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Judah. We are also able to see in the Old Testament that this pool is visited by Nehemiah in chapter 2, verse 14 of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah inspects the damage that's done to the city, we read in verse 14, Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. After this blind man receives his sight and returns from the pool of Siloam. Verse 8 says, His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Someone said he was. Others said, No, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, Yes, I am the same one. They asked, Who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. In his adulthood, the blind man's only chance for income was begging. As he would not have been able to get a job. These people who see him out every day begging this man's whole life to this point he sat out begging we don't have the age of this man but if he's 20 some years old he's been begging for years for a long time he's been a staple he's been something that these people pass by every day for years These people who are so used to seeing him every single day start asking, where's this man gone? Can this man who has sight, who's walking around, who's functioning as a normal adult, possibly be him? 
see, these people probably didn't get a good look at him. They probably know that he looks like him, but how many of them were really stopping to take the time to get to know this man? We get to see a direct application from three verses ago where Christ talks about being the light of the world and Christ talks about what it's going to be like when the night comes, when he has resurrected. And he talks about how the people are going to be the ones that carry the light. Right here, we get a real world explanation of what that looks like only three verses later. This man, through his testimony about his experience with Christ, is already sharing Christ's light to other people. Just three verses later, after sharing his testimony, in verse 13 we read, Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees, because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, He put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. This event happens fresh off of the last two chapters, where Jesus and the Pharisees have been back and forth. The Pharisees remain heated, just as Jesus had claimed in chapter 7. They seek to kill him for healing on the Sabbath. Jesus responds by healing on the Sabbath. Again, the Pharisees immediately pull this man in to interrogate him for evidence against Jesus and to make people fear following Jesus because of the Pharisees' influence. They're using fear as a tool to keep people away from any faith that would drive the people away from giving the Pharisees the influence they look for. As the Pharisees continue to interrogate this man in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, But how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division among them. Here in this verse, like we've seen in many different times through the book of John so far, we see questions from the Pharisees repeated over and over and over. There can be many reasons for this. Originally, I personally felt that their questioning seemed very interrogational. Like the questions that they asked were leading questions to gather evidence, to make a case against Jesus, even if they had to twist things and frame the stories in the right way just to paint the picture that they wanted, not really to find truth. The KJV labels it as the confusion of the Pharisees. And it says that it's obvious in their repeated questioning opposed to how I was looking at it. A good point that was made in the NIV study notes is that when you look at the Pharisees, they begin with an entrenched position that keeps, or may I say blinds, with this chapter in mind, them from seeing the truth. 
they already have it in their mind that Jesus is not from God. Jesus isn't doing the work of God. Jesus isn't God. They won't be listening to anything that backs that truth. They've already figured out that this is something that we'll never accept. So every time they go into a conversation, every time they go into a situation to question the things that are going on, that outcome's not possible. So we have to question and question and question until we find what that truth might be that would explain this in a way that isn't that. But what happens when that is the truth? They are so confused because if you eliminate truth as a possibility, especially the truth as a possibility, logical explanation no longer exists. Because they were unwilling to be wrong, they made themselves blind to the explanation that Jesus is God, or even from God. In the circumstance, making themselves blind from the truth. The second line in 16 calls me back to the end of chapter 7, when the Pharisees attempt to find solace in being a united front that Jesus won't persuade them. The draw to there's division amongst them. Back in chapter 7, they stand there and they jeer that no Pharisee believes this. No Pharisee's as doctrinally unsound. And then they're shocked by the response of Nicodemus, who says, you try and put this man on trial. And you have no evidence you're already looking at the sentencing and you have no evidence to even take him to trial. The Pharisees in chapter 7, as we read, only have a retort, which they don't even look at truth in their retort. They're wrong. They say no prophet comes from Galilee, and yet we have prophets from Galilee in the Old Testament, which they're supposed to know so well. To be a Pharisee, they're supposed to have studied the Old Testament so well. In 17, just as we've been talking about, the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who has healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. Reading here in verse 17, I think that this question has multiple reasons. First, we've been speaking about the confusion of the Pharisees. Maybe they were just curious to see what this man had to say. Second, we are about to read about this man's parents and how they refuse to answer because the Pharisees have decided if anyone claimed Jesus as the Messiah, they would be cast out. They were probably looking for another chance to cast this man out to make him and his story discredited. If they could frame this man as some lunatic that had to be cast out of the church, then his testimony, they could always make the argument that, well, this guy's a lunatic. That's why he was cast out of the church. And then they would have an argument against such a wonderful testimony of healing, which, as we've read, was a sign of the Messiah. Verse 18, the Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. They asked them, Is this your son? Was he born blind? 
If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, We know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That is why they said, he is old enough, ask him. To begin here, we see the Pharisees' denial of the sign that Jesus was the Messiah. We spoke of Isaiah's prophecy that the miracle of restoring sight to the blind would be a sign of the Messiah. An act that, as we read later in verse 32, has never been done before in all of history. These Pharisees were experts of the law and would surely have known of Isaiah's prophecy. Then can you imagine that your family, who you have relied on more than anything else through your childhood as a blind person, you would have had no way to take care of yourself, no way to know about the world around you if it weren't for someone there helping you, especially in this day and age. But they throw you back to the wolves out of fear because they were so afraid of the influence of the Pharisees that they weren't going to stand by their son. That's an important thing to note. The fear of the Pharisees was so great that they were willing to capitulate about a miracle that they had to have been 100% sure of. They knew their son was blind. And as we'll talk about later, we'll confront this when we get to verse 32. They would have known that no person has ever been healed of being blind. After hearing the command of the Pharisees that they would cast out anyone who claimed Jesus as the Messiah, they were willing to put it all on their son just to protect their societal image. This is where I like to look at the Bible and ask, how does this apply to my life? What fears or pressures do we put in front of our faith? What don't we address when it comes to standing for God? Because we allow other ideas to control us. Are we really faithful to God when anything forces us to not give God everything that we have? Stepping back into John chapter 9, we're going to read verses 24 to 34. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple 
but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Isn't it beautiful to see after the miracle that this man had in his encounter with Jesus, that he so quickly counts himself as a believer and a follower, a disciple of Jesus? Verse 32, I think, explains why. This man has been blind since birth. If anyone has the historical knowledge about the blind, it's a man born blind, hoping and searching his whole life for some hope that he may be cured. This man probably exhausted all resources. He probably did all he possibly could to try and live life normally. He builds one of the strongest arguments we see. Better than any we've seen from the Pharisees. He begins with God, doesn't listen to sinners. A statement in response with the Pharisees condemning Jesus as a sinner without evidence. We see evidence of this man's point when we look to the Old Testament in Psalms chapter 34 verses 15 and 16. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will erase their memory from the earth. Then, in Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, we read, If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Verse 33 is just so beautiful, impactful, and truthful. In verse 34, we see a hardening of the Pharisees' hearts against Jesus. The doctrine of a blind man proves them as being blind to the truth. And they resort to casting this man out, which is what the parents were fearing. Being cast out had more implications than just not being allowed in the temple. It was a cutoff for social relationships in the community as well. To this man it may not have meant as much because he was already an outcast in society. To his parents, it obviously meant a lot more. I'm going to read the last section, which is 35 to 41, 35 to the end, as a whole. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered in this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they're blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. Jesus replied, 
but you remain guilty because you claim that you see. In verse 35, we see that Jesus seeks this blind man out. This man confessed faith for Jesus openly when he was being interrogated. He called Jesus a prophet, and we have no indication that this man understood Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus, in introducing himself that way, uses his favored Son of Man title here again that we've seen multiple times through the book of John so far as he introduced himself to the healed man. Then, in 39 to 40, Jesus says that he's here to render judgment. Well, we know from John chapter 3, verse 17, that Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save it. He clarifies saying, it's to give sight to the blind. It's, it's to give hope to the sinner. And to show those who think that they see that they are blind. Blinded to the truth by their own hate, as we have mentioned. And the way that the Pharisees believe that they know everything and they're perfect. He's here to show them that they're a sinner just the same. They need forgiveness just the same. And that just because they make laws doesn't mean that those laws are part of God's law. Jesus comes with division. The division he brings is, do you know him or do you not? We see in this chapter so plainly that this man who is healed, this man who didn't see, this man who claims to be blind both spiritually and physically, is offered sight, just as Jesus is telling us right here in this verse. And, inversely, we see the Pharisees who claim that they have all the sight that you could have when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to God. And they are the people who have been spiritually blind and unable to see the truth that is before them, as we've talked this whole chapter. Chapter 9 has been a wonderful chapter. And I'm really, really excited to see where Katie goes with chapter 10. I know Katie has done a very good study in chapter 10 and has a lot of information to share with you guys. I pray that the Holy Spirit has led you through this study in chapter 9 and has touched your heart. And I pray that the Holy Spirit continues to lead you as you continue through the study in the book of John. We are so happy for you guys being here in search of a better relationship with Christ. And we cannot wait to see you back when we talk about chapter 10.